A funny thing happened when I arrived in America. I thought I was fleeing a dictatorship, but it turns out I got here just in time for you guys to start your own. But things in America are not nearly as bad as they are in the Middle East. Compared to those dictators, Trump looks like a tree-hugging liberal. I have learned a thing or two about living in a dictatorship. Only a few people are in charge, and they control everything. The laws, the military, even the media. Control of the media is a big deal. Dictators dictate. They have power over everything, including what the public knows about what's going on in their own country. So, stories matter. At first, the dictators use fear to get themselves in power. Fear of outsiders, fear of infidels, fear of chaos and instability. People agree to go along because they are scared. But after a while, people in a dictatorship get used to the idea that they need a powerful man to tell them what to do, how to live, to tell them a story. It reminds me of Stockholm Syndrome, when hostages come to trust and even love their captors. And it's the same story in a dictatorship, but on a much bigger scale. A whole nation has been kidnapped, but comes to believe that the man with guns is also a good guy, that he's looking out for them. Violence that started in the streets finds a home in the minds of the people. I believe that you are whatever story you tell yourself. Under our old dictator, Hosni Mubarak, a lot of Egyptians were conditioned to accept him, to settle for being hostages to tyranny. Their eyes were closed to reality, and they were not ready for the Arab Spring in 2011. When the Arab Spring broke out, I saw a dictatorship from the front lines. I treated wounded protesters in Tahrir Square with my own hands. I knew the Arab Spring was happening, even though the state was telling the media not to report it. Even my brother needed convincing. He watched the news and he believed whatever the state-run media told him. I had to drag him to Tahrir Square to show him that this was a real revolution. I had to help him change the story in his mind. These days, I find that I'm telling myself a new story, one in which I wonder if I'm even going to be allowed to stay in this country, let alone whether I'm going to make it or not. I'm a brown guy in a white land. I have an accent, and I check every day to see if my country finally made the latest edition of the Muslim ban. Despite the challenges of my new home, I try to remind myself that only I get to tell my own story. And if I give up, if I decide I can't make it because of how I look or how I sound, that's on me. In this episode, I talk to someone who has spent a lot of time thinking about the way stories shape reality, Baratunde Thurston. The story that this country told itself, the story that it told the stolen people that it relied on to literally drain the swamps to create roads and housing and an economy here, was reinforced at the end of a whip, at the end of a gun, at the end of a brand, over and over and over. Baratunde has worked at The Onion and The Daily Show. He also published the New York Times best-selling book, How to Be Black. Today, Baratunde and I talk about the different stories of America and how he fought to tell his story on his terms. I'm Basim Youssef, and this is Remade in America, presented by CAFE.
My wife and kids just left town to visit family all summer, and I am out of luck. See, I'm a vegan with a problem. I can't cook. I was really worried about how I would eat healthy this summer until I heard about some basket. Now I can explore new flavors, cuisines, and ingredients every week. You too can get delicious recipes and organic produce delivered right to your door, all thanks to some basket. Now you get more options than ever. Just go to the Sun Basket app and pick from 18 recipes options every week. You can eat vegan like me or choose paleo, gluten-free, and many other options. You see, I'm not that annoying vegan who will shame you for your food choices. At least, not out loud. Sun Basket brings you fresh, organic food. Go to sunbasket.com slash remade today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash remade for $35 off. sunbasket.com slash remade. Okay, back to Remade in America. Today's guest is Baratunde Thurston. Baratunde has spent a lot of time examining the black experience in America. And he explained to me that it's not just a collection of experiences, but a set of systems, American systems. America and most of what we consider to be any form of reality, whether that reality is Egypt or Earth or 1946 or Cardi B, it's a story. Right? We, we have physics and we have some tangible facts, but mostly we have the story we tell ourselves about who we are, what our place in the world is, what the rules we abide by are. Our, our laws are not physical laws, right? They're stories that we make up. And America was founded on a really corrupt story and one that required uh, the exploitation of forced labor and required the dehumanization of a whole people. It required the creation of whiteness at the expense of these dark bodies from Africa. And what America perfected and innovated on wasn't freedom, it was exploitation. Um, in fact, it was probably both, right? Our language and our rhetoric was really innovative in the way that Constitution was written and the way it evolved beyond the Magna Carta and some of the other documents of the day. But we were also really inspired and innovative in how we could break a people down and make slavery hereditary and make it a moral issue, and make it a religious issue, a Christian issue. And the story that this country told itself, the story that it told the stolen people that it relied on to literally drain the swamps to create roads and housing and an economy here, was vast and reinforced at the end of a whip, at the end of a gun, at the end of a brand, over and over and over. And I think all of us in our own lives have believed at a moment, uh, negative attributes about ourselves, whether it's because of a marketing message we saw which says we're fat or we're ugly or we're stupid, whether because of another child we know in school who makes us feel less than who we ought to be or a parent of our own who beats us into thinking that we're dumber than we are. So imagine that happening over and over, generation after generation, and you have nothing to fall back on. Your language has been taken from you. Your religion has been taken from you. Your music has been taken from you. Your creativity, all that you are as a body, is labor, and you're a story that the rest of the country lives on top of so that they have something to feel superior to. We put a lot more into constructing that system of white supremacy and black racial inferiority than we have to undo it. And that system, he says, shames black people in America. You're allowed to be black, you're allowed to be successful, but you can't be both. One example of this is the use of the term Oreo. It's a derogatory term that means black on the outside, white on the inside. Sometimes black people get called Oreos for talking white, dressing white, 
and doing whatever it is the accuser deems too white. I asked Baratunde about this. There's a deep sadness to that uh, kind of dynamic and that level of insult because what's under that is a level of like self-loathing, self-hate, low self-esteem where you are so insecure in your own identity that you want to undermine someone else's. Possibly because they can do something you can't do or because you didn't bother to try to do or because the opportunity wasn't afforded to you. Right? Whether you chose it or whether it's just an outcome of choices that came before you, someone else is having this opportunity or living this life or socializing with these people and you can't do that. So you know what? You're going to create your own in-group, out-group. And it's going to say, well, to be really black, you got to be this type. And if you're doing any of these other things, then you're not actually one of us. So there. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so you know, folks can get stuck from either end where, you know, to be simple about it, kind of like the white society and the black society, both can look at you and say, you don't belong here. Did you have this experience with some parts of the black society telling you? Yeah. You, yeah. You, you did that, no, I, I think, you know, there's been, um, you know, pursuing education, the language I use, the courses I would take, there's definitely some judgment of, you know, is that acting white? And it's like, well, why does that have to be called white? Yes. And it's like, ah. Oh. So I think what's, what's a little more complicated, it's still a consequence of the larger system of white supremacy and superiority that says, well, the good things are white, right? The leaders are white. The people who have the money are white. The folks with the bigger houses in general have been white. And it's what you want to aspire to. Like, historically speaking, you aspire to be free like white people, to have land and property like white people. So it's, it's an insult that is oddly based in a real history, but one that shouldn't be true in, in our present and in our future. And so I think you know, we're all in the poison. We've all been raised in it. And it's impossible to kind of have breathed the air of racism and not exhale its results. America doesn't have exclusive rights to racism. I moved here from Egypt, from Africa. You might think that because we have dark Nubian figures on our ancient temples, Egyptians are not racist against dark-skinned people. Well, you would be wrong. Now, it's not exactly the same situation in America. Racism against dark-skinned people in Egypt didn't have the same institutional roots. I can't point to the same concrete things like you had here. School segregation, separate water fountains, black people sitting at the back of the bus. Still, many people in my region consider dark skin as something inferior. It's a spectrum. The darker you are, the less respect you get. And the victims of this discrimination take it to heart. Just like Baratundi said, they begin to believe the story that they are not equal. Here's one example that comes to mind. In Egypt, in the Middle East, and many other places like India, Some women who have darker skin use skin whitening creams. You heard me right. That's the opposite of tanning creams. It's a status symbol, an attempt to belong. White skin, it's what passes for beauty. Dark is bad. Light is good. America isn't the only country where people judge each other based on their skin color or their religion for that matter. So I'm a Muslim, and I look like one too. People ask me questions about why other Muslims do things all the time. And here's my answer. I don't fucking know. People treat me like a spokesman for all Muslims. But I'm not all Muslims. At best, I can speak for liberal, secular Arab Muslims. But even then, how do I know what other people are thinking? 
But that's the thing. When you are an outsider, it becomes your job to explain yourself, also to explain other people who share your religion, your skin color, your nationality, whatever. And this is another way that Bartundi and I connected. Many times he's been asked to explain the point of view of black Americans. When you do some kind of crossover, right? Mm -hmm. So I was born in a pretty much all-black community. I was raised in a black and Latino community for my entire childhood through age 18. But I started going to a school at age 12, 13 that was majority white. And once you do any kind of like transition like that and you become a minority in that sense, that new group says, hey, you're from this other group we don't know that much about. Can you explain? And it's rarely malicious. Like it's often out of actual ignorance, sometimes a well-intended curiosity, sometimes even a benevolent desire to understand. It can be exhausting. And I've added to it by actually speaking, right? Like, I perform, I write books and columns, so I am literally a spokesperson, uh, though obviously not for all black people. I have taken it upon myself to write about race and talk about race. So I have to be a little careful about complaining because I, I wrote a book called How to Be Black, so I can't be exactly mad at you when you say, well, what's going on with black people over here? Uh, but I think the reason that it happens more deeply is that we don't really have a shared experience in our society, in this country. We're, we're very segregated still in our churches, in our workplaces, where we live, in our neighborhoods, and, and in our schools. Baratunde mentioned his book How to Be Black. For Baratunde, part of being black is understanding what people expect of him because of how he looks, whether they know him or not. We talked about how he felt the need to censor himself because of who he was. I feel very grateful for the life I've had. I'm looking very much forward to the life yet to come. And I've had some amazing jobs. I don't want all of them again, but, like, I got to work at some dope, you know, award-winning, jealousy-inducing institutions. Um, I've gotten to speak at all these different places, and I think a lot of it is because of who I am, Mm -hmm. you know, in all the senses, uh, because... Uh, of my race, because of my my story and my background. So there have been difficulties, not necessarily in getting opportunities, because I've had more than was probably a fair share, but uh, in realizing them, in handling all the politics of what it means to to be in these worlds, most certainly uh, there's challenges. Now, I'm living in in a place where I'm just seen as a threat, right? Like from the outside in, if you don't really know me, if my name doesn't mean anything to you, if you're just some police officer walking down the street, I'm expected to explode, I'm expected to harm, and I have managed my whole life to minimize that. Right? I think naturally I'm a peaceful and kind of loving person, but there is a level of expression that I rein in a little bit because I don't want to give anyone an excuse, and this is direct and a little extreme, but to kill me, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's the cost here. And you don't have to be doing anything dangerous or risky or threatening to have that result. So I'm not saying that working at the Daily Show, I fear for my life. That's not the lesson here. But I am saying that it's not a simple story of triumph or or skipping out on the hard bits. It's that just the challenge is reformatted and restructured. Okay, so you're in. Now you got to manage. 
your emotions in this way. Now you got to deal with people's expectations and shitty little comments. And uh, now you got to explain this and that. And you have to constantly realize like, oh, you have a totally different perspective on the world that your colleagues never had to have. And that it's your opportunity, maybe your obligation to share a little bit with them. So it's easier for the next person like you who comes in here. I can summarize your story in one sentence. Oh, please, because I took like 30 right there. No, no, no. Your story is about disappointing those who expect the worst out of you. (laughs) I remember when I had my show in Egypt and both military and Islamist supporters directed their vile attacks against me. I didn't fight back, at least not directly. Instead, I responded with jokes, smiles, and giggles, and that drove them crazy. They were angry, not just because I made fun of them, but because I didn't allow myself to be dragged down to their level. I didn't let them win. I took the high road of comedy. Yes, compared to their attacks, satire was a step up. Let's take a short break. When we come back, Baratonde will tell us what it was like to work at The Daily Show right after Jon Stewart left. That's like getting hired in heaven the day after God retires. So don't leave us. I would like to be a movie star. But for anyone with normal goals, ZipRecruiter can help you hire the right people. Hiring used to be hard, but today hiring can be easy and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash remade. ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience, invites them to apply to your job, and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 8% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest-rated hiring site in America. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash remade. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash remade. I wonder if casting directors use ZipRecruiter to find adorable tanned leading men. ZipRecruiter.com slash remade. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I just opened my new Casper mattress and laid down on it for the first time. (sighs) Wow, you feel it instantly. And I don't remember anything else. Support for Remade in America comes from Casper. It's a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience, one night at a time. You spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. Casper brand mattresses combine multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with the right amounts of both sink and bounce. Casper offers free shipping in the U.S. and Canada. And if you aren't completely satisfied, Casper makes it easy to return your mattress at no charge and no hassle. Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash remade and using promo code remade at checkout. That's casper.com slash remade and promo code remade for $50 towards select mattresses. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Remade in America, presented by Café. Our guest, Baratondi Thurston, has succeeded as a writer, as a comedian, as an activist. A black man who has been able to tell his own story, despite the system set up to keep him from doing so. Baratondi's challenges weren't all systemic. They were also personal. You know, 
I could see a world in which Bartondi's life turned out very different. His father was shot and killed when he was only six years old. But Bartondi told me that he had a lot of help and some luck getting where he is today. I know I lucked out with the parent who survived. Arnita Thurston was above average, to say the least. And in some ways, I may have been lucky that my father didn't survive because of the demons that he carried that I was not exposed to. So I'm not happy at his demise, but it is a part of my story, and the route that I ended up on is in part a function of him not being there and my mother having this exclusive influence on me. I was heavily invested in by other people, uh, some who I know and can thank out loud, others who I'll never know because they did it quietly. I had great teachers in my early public school education. I was a part of the Head Start program for pre-kindergarten early childhood development. I was a member of the Boy Scouts. I did Taekwondo lessons, the D.C. Youth Orchestra program, the Higher Achievement program. I was a major project of the society and the community around me. And, and it was financial, and it was moral, and it was creative, and more. I met Tuskegee Airmen, who were these famed black pilots, when I was like seven years old, man. Because I was just lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. I didn't choose that. I'm like, I'm going to be born in 1977 in uh, 1522 Newton Street, Northwest Washington, D.C. I don't choose that. I accept it because that's what the reality dealt me and that's what fate dealt me. Um, and on top of that, I have something in me, I'm sure, that is a bit of drive. I have a bit of ego. I have some talent. I'm not giving it all to the gods. But I want to emphasize that this is, is a combination and it's a collective. Baratundi called his mom above average, and I wanted to know what he meant by that. I've always thought that behind every great person is at least one amazing parent, and Baratundi only had one parent. So I asked him about his mom and the impact she'd had on his life. Arnita Lorraine Thurston, that's her name, born in August of 1940, deceased in October of 2005. And for those 65 years, she wore her life pretty hard. She grew up in a time when being black was not much to be proud of, according to everyone, including black people. So she grew up in an era where shame was the norm around being black. And she's a woman, so she's carrying both of these reduced identities in America at the time. She grows up in an era where she is sexually abused, and her mother takes the side of the abuser and, in fact, marries that man. She grows up where she has to roll with a gang in her neighborhood for protection. They weren't selling drugs or running guns. They were literally trying to be safer from other people in the neighborhood. And, uh, and she grew up in a time when her, own, her parents didn't really believe in her. So she was dealt not the greatest hand, uh, except for her mind. She was an explorer, an adventurer. She's really smart. And so she left her home very early. She was, I remember her telling me the story where she challenged her mother on why the pictures of Jesus in their church were white, on why the Christian church felt the need to go abroad and proselytize and convert people away from the religions and spiritual practices they were perfectly happy to adhere to and start praying to this white God. And the answer, of course, was because and respect your elders. Uh, mm. So once my mother was able, she kind of left that universe and started to find out things for herself. And Arnita passed on those beliefs to her son, taught him that he deserved to be loved and elevated. And I'm sure she'd be proud to see him now. Baratunde is the picture of success. I hope my kids are remotely as successful as Baratunde. Frankly, I hope I am. 
One of the coolest jobs he's had is helping transition The Daily Show to a new host after Jon Stewart retired. You helped relaunch The Daily Show with Trevor now, and you came in after someone who was a legend yes. left a huge space behind. And I just I want to tell you, I hate Trevor Noah for two reasons. Okay. First of all, because I wanted that show. <laughs> and second, he is so damn good. So now I know that I will never get that show. <laughs> <laughs> no, Trevor is just, he's brilliant. And yeah. I, I just like, I respect him. Uh, I lo- love you, Trevor. I didn't mean that. Oh, so, that's so uh, sweet. So you were there yes. where everybody was looking, hmm, who's going to take Jon Stewart's place, right? Right. That was a lot of pressure. How did yeah, you on him. It? Yeah, but, but you were in the team. I mean, yeah. if, he, if he failed, you would have failed too, right? It was, um, it was the toughest job I ever had. It was not always enjoyable. I would mm-hmm. say, like overall, I, was, I definitely enjoyed the job at The Onion more than at The Daily Show. Because uh, I was there in a different season. Mm-hmm. I was at The Onion during its rise. I was at The Daily Show during its question mark. Yes. And you have massive expectations. You have unknown non-American, brown kid that everybody outside of the country kind of knows about, especially in Africa and in parts of Europe. But in the U.S., nobody knows who this guy is. And my unique position in that, I was there because of Trevor, right? So I'm forever grateful to him for the opportunity to even be a part of this thing because I learned a lot. I was the only new executive to join other than him at the time that he did. So in some ways, I felt like, I got you, homie. Like, we're in this. In other ways, I'm like, I have no idea what's going on here. And there's, like, a, an internal language at a place like that, at any place that's had a, an established culture for at least, I'd say, at least 15 years. There was a rupture when he left. It was impossible. Whoever took that seat is going to be damn near impossible. So you felt so, as an outsider, as, you were, felt, co- as uh, you were coming into this established things, like, yeah. what the hell am I doing And here? I was there to do an outsider-y thing. Mm. I was there to... It's not, I didn't take a job that existed so I came in to an existing show with a new leader, yet the same team, to do a new job that no one there had ever done before. That's like change on change on change on change. That's a lot of damn change. That was very, very challenging, sort of politically, creatively, et cetera. Yeah. I said before that when John Stewart announced his retirement, honestly, I wanted his show. But when I heard that Trevor Noah got it, I thought, a black John Stewart? That's almost as cool as Obama being president. People tell me that to be a TV or movie star, you have to be bankable. A studio needs to know that your name on their project will guarantee that they make a lot of money. And from what I can tell, it means you have to be white or be really, really hot. And I am not either. Offer two, my friends. Offer two. All the whitening cream in the world can't help me. I learned from Baratondi a different way to tell the story of America. He reminded me that the story of being an outsider in America is comprised of many smaller stories, some of them proud, some of them amazing. Like Bertondi's mom, she was much more than above average. I also realized during this conversation that it's probably a good thing I didn't end up hosting The Daily Show after all. Those were some big shoes to fill. And unlike Trevor, I'm definitely not qualified to be Bertondi's boss. Besides, I've got this podcast to make now. And there is no way Trevor could have handled working with my Pozo producers. Before I sign off, it's time to check my voicemail and see what listeners are telling me. Hey, boss, I'm a big fan. Name's Mike. 
really loved watching your segments when you were on The Daily Show and holding us accountable. And I just wanted to let you know that The Daily Show should have been yours. You should have been given that show. It's bullshit that they gave it to Trevor Noah. Granted, he does have some good stuff from time to time. I like you. You should have been on The Daily Show, and you should have your own show in the States. So thank you for doing what you do. Take care, man. Well, thanks, Mike, for your uh, for your message. First of all, Trevor is doing a fantastic job. He's very funny. Uh, his stand-up comedy is just, like, phenomenal. This guy is very talented. So um, uh, I, I wish I have my own show. doesn't have to be The Daily Show. There are so many shows, so many spots everywhere. There are horrible shows that could be canceled anytime, and I can fill one of them. If you have an outsider story or a question for me or want to suggest a topic that we cover on this show, tweet at me or call me at 785-4-BASIN. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every good review makes it easier for new listeners to find the show. Remade in America is presented by CAFE and produced by Neon Hum Media. Our show producer is Vikram Patel, editorial support from Ashley Kleek. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Our theme song is by Beethoven Music. And special thanks to Jeff Eisenman and Brian Carmel. Next week on Remade in America. I didn't even want to apply to the internship at NPR because I thought I wasn't good enough. I myself had closed the doors because I was like, come on, I'll never get hired. I'm not white and I'm not a man. I'm Bassim Youssef. Talk to you soon. Hello, you've reached 7854 Bassim. Tell me about the last time you felt like an outsider or what I should talk about next on the show. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Bassem, buddy, yo, congratulations. You got a phone number. That's like step two to becoming an American. Of course, step one is being called un-American by a president. So you are right on your way there, homie, right on your way. Just a couple quick things. I need to know when our episode is going to drop. I told some Russian oligarchs that they would find out when. And when you make a deal with those dudes, you know the rules. Don't ask oligarchs questions. Uh, also, if you can make a small edit to the piece, that'd be great. Uh, just take out the part where I said I wasn't called an Oreo. I probably was, and bullies love credit. In fact, if you don't give them credit, they tend to keep bullying you. So if you could handle those, uh, that'd be dope. And again, I am so excited for you.